Our scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is God's word. We're actually going to get right to work. I'm going to start uh, in 2 Corinthians with a verse that we like to avoid and not read. So I'll read it uh, because they got to beat me up uh, this week, and so now it's your turn. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So in the second letter to the Corinthian church, uh, Paul charges the Christians to do a self-exam, to ask hard questions of themselves, not others, which is our tendency. Let's just talk about ourselves. To evaluate if we are living with minds set and, and seeking Christ. So for the last 13 weeks, well, prior to Christmas, the 13 weeks before that, the letter to the Colossians has been our test. It's been a mirror, if you will, to hold up to see what we look like. And it's a letter that is written, or was written, to a church that, quite frankly, is much like ours, about the same age. Uh, it's written to a church in a city that's quite like ours. And it is written to a people probably a lot like us, may all just say me, because I can't speak for everyone, where it's a fight, quite frankly, to hold Jesus Christ as supreme, supremely greater than the world, and stuff in the world. And it is supremely difficult to live with Christ as sufficient for every satisfaction in this life or the next. It's hard. And their world, the Colossian world like ours, um, having been dominated by Roman culture at the time, offered all kinds of material and political and even as we've read spiritual lords and saviors that are not named Jesus Christ. Things that we believe might save us, that give us hope, that might um, give us some kind of personal value. And so Paul writes this letter to condemn basically all of these things, all the idols, all philosophy, all human tradition, all these self-made religions that have come into these cities, these lies and these half-truths that may have the appearance of wisdom and spirituality, but he says, is pretty um, useless in changing the heart. And so Paul's argument is pretty simple, and it's pretty plain, and pretty straightforward. And it's simply that Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, is the answer to all and every problem. That's it. And my hope is that's what you hear every Sunday. Because we can never stop hearing that enough. Very tempting to find other saviors and lords, and I'm just telling you there's one, and only one. Paul starts with big theology. I think theology is important. And Paul's letter to the Colossians, as many of his letters do, start with big theology and then bring it to real life. And he talks about Jesus. And he, and he declares Him as the eternal Son of God, the Creator of all things. Everything. The Ruler of all things. The Sustainer of all things. The One who, who came to earth and took on human flesh and became the healer of all things, by dying on a cross and by raising from the dead so that those who put faith in what He did would become saints. 
But the gospel is not supposed to be the set of, of theological facts that we just accept, that saves us, and then we move on to more spiritual things. And that's the, the key that Paul's trying to hit. It's like we never get beyond the gospel. The implications of the gospel must be preached to ourselves and to others over and over and over and over and over again. Because that is where there is life. That is where there is hope. Paul's mission is not to take irreligious people and make them religious. That's not what he wants to do. In fact, he says that's not only stupid, it could be sinful. And you can do all of that, be religious that is, without Jesus. His mission is to mature believers in Christ. To take the gospel truth and to apply it to the hearts deeply. Deeply, so that we begin to be transformed and that which is dead suddenly becomes alive and more alive and more alive and more alive. So this happens, I believe, when we spend time with Jesus, when we listen to Jesus, when we meditate on Jesus, when we talk with and about Jesus. It not only begins with a radical Change in identity. What Colossians says, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You are what was dead, made alive by Christ. But then, as you spend time with Christ, through His Word, mysteriously, but without question, radically, it begins to shape your daily life. Real life. Not just the stuff you do, but even your attitudes, and your perspectives, and your reactions, and ultimately all of your relationships. It transforms it, that one gospel. Christians, I use that term lightly, because let's be honest, anyone, and there's a lot of anyone's these days, can call themselves a Christian. And I'm beginning to believe that there is a huge difference in a Christian and a follower of Christ. And I'm trying not to use labels, but it just seems like we have to these days. Christians, genuine believers in Christ, that are devoted to the Lordship of Jesus, will have different marriages and different families and different attitudes towards your jobs and different attitudes towards everything. Different than culture, because culture is devoted to itself. Different than it, it has to look different if it's true lordship. And so the great test question for today's verse, as Paul takes his big theology and takes it directly into the family, the great test question for us, for me, for you, is that if our faithful devotion suddenly and spontaneously Stop this moment. Would our families function or look any different? If our devotion just ceased for whatever reason, would our families look any different? We spent two weeks, the last two weeks we're in this, uh, in Colossians, on husbands and wives uh, in terms of the beginning of the family. And now we're moving into, Paul's going to apply the gospel, if you will, to the parent-child relationship. Now, the first verse deals with the children. The second verse deals with the parents. And be very careful for those who go, I don't have kids, to let that veil drop over your heart because I'm telling you it's the Word of God and He's got something to smack you with. He really does. I mean encourage you with. Okay? 
or both. First verse deals with how children relate to their parents. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I like that verse. It's a good parent verse. The Bible tells children to obey their parents in everything. It's a big swath, right? I looked up the Greek. It means in everything, okay? We don't have to be a scholar. Obedience here, though, is different, which is good, than the submission it talked about between husbands and wives. Clarifying for us that the husband and wife relationship isn't like this. This is more, the relationship between the child and the parent is more than just consenting to follow a leader. It's doing what you're told. Now, this is a, um, a popular verse in the Ford home. I like this verse. Okay, And there's no need for me, I've been very freed to stop pulling the um, I told you so card. Why do I have to do this? Because I told you so. Oh no. I go to the Grand Poopa trump card of them all and say, because God told you to obey me. Now, that might seem kind of like, ha silly, but think about this. It is essential. It is so important for your children to know that you are under an authority outside of yourself. They need to know that. That just as they are under your authority, you are under God's authority. That you ask them to do stuff, you are doing it out of obedience to God, not just because you are the grandpapa of the home. That will fail. They need to see, they need to know, and this will, this will help you in many ways in your instruction and your discipline. To know that if I don't do blank, I will be disobeying God. And so I, I'm going to love you enough to obey God because I believe that is the path to joy and to glory. That's huge. They need to know you're under authority. That the respect that is due to you as a parent from your children is not the result of some personal intrinsic awesomeness in you. Okay? Your children need to know that. Although I'm sure you're awesome. Okay? I feel like, you know, anytime my kid draws a little picture, you're the best dad in the world. Okay. I feel like it. Yeah. Your children need to know, and you need to know, Mommy and Daddy are sinners, just like Junior. Not better or worse, a sinner. And that their obedience in everything comes not primarily out of reverence for you, but out of a reverence for God. Because it pleases Him. So you obey kids. Here you go, parents. If you are a younger child, you've got parents... You're living under their roof. You obey your mom and dad not solely because it pleases them, but because it pleases God. That is your motivation. Now, the best way, among all things we can teach our kids to love to share all those things, the best way for children to learn to serve the Lord is for them to learn to obey their parents. That's what the Bible teaches. Not because it's easy. Because it's right. In fact, it's very much not easy. It's difficult. I remember it was like being a kid, and I was told a lot of things I didn't want to do. But let's just consider for a second, okay? Righteous Jesus. 
Whereas, where all this needs to go back to, I get so irritated with, with books or sermons or whatever that kind of like, well, yeah, Jesus, and here's a bunch of truth stuff you need to worry about. Okay, you need to bring the gospel to bear on all these things. That's the point. That's the hope of this church, quite frankly. The gospel applies to everything. And so let's consider Jesus, who, in his obedience, by the command of his Father, was sent to the world, and willingly, by the command of his Father, died on the cross. Obediently. For the joy, I believe, of bringing honor to his Father and salvation to us. Obedience, even when painful. He had a larger view beyond that pain, if you will. See, kids, my kids don't necessarily have issue um, with doing what they're told as long as it doesn't inconvenience them, make them uncomfortable, or cause them to have to stop doing something they're doing, whatever. And that's, that's kind of the point. It may not be as physically painful as this, but you know, when you give a command and there's, and there's rebellion because they don't want to do it, because they believe it's going to cause them some level of pain. Christ demonstrated what that looked like in a righteous and sinless way. In the companion passage in Ephesians, if you lay Colossians and Ephesians right next to each other, they're written about the same, they're written the same time, and they very much uh, share a lot of verses. This is one of them. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes this, I believe it's um, the first couple of verses, says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Not this is easy, because this is right. And he continues and says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. This is another popular verse in the Ford home. Okay? There is a promise attached to the command to honor and obey your parents that things would go well and that one would live long in the land meant that the Israelite would be sure to experience the promised covenant blessings of the Lord. It would be a God-glorifying and enjoyable life, according to God's definition. The antithesis was also true. If you dishonored your parents, if you disobeyed your parents, then you would experience God's other promises, which were promises of cursings which was a promise that you would have, quite frankly, a self-glorifying life, that would be unsatisfying. Okay? Now, we are tempted, both kids and parents, when we hear, like, obey your parents and everything, to kind of insert a little parenthetical in there. Be like, well, you know what that really means? It means the good commands. Like, who defines good? But it's, you know, the stuff that's, that's not sinful. Well, again, my kids don't really have issue with obeying if I'm asking them to go lie. Well, it's rarely, you know, I don't imagine that ever has happened. Murder this person, son. I mean, it's just, right? The sinful stuff isn't an issue. It's the stuff they don't like. That's the issue. Now, Paul's, the, the explanation of the promise here, the promise is not dependent upon the quality of the command. The, the promise, and what is emphasized here, is upholding the creative order of God. That's what's most important. Honoring the authority God has placed in your life. And 
disobedient and disrespectful youth. I say youth because I spent 10 years in the high schools and I saw this, just, I saw it transforming even over 10 years, becoming worse and worse. And what you see is a telltale sign of the decay of family and of culture. Disrespectful and, and, and disobedient children is where that begins. And the rejection or dishonoring of the authorities that God has placed in your life, whoever those might be. Kids, it's your parents. It's the first and most obvious sign of a rejection of God's authority. That's what it's a sign of. Now, I know everyone is thinking one of two things. Okay, ready? First, there are those of you who don't have children. And you're thinking, why have I come to church today? Okay. You're thinking about going for a second cookie because you think this doesn't apply to you. Right? And they're good cookies. I mean, I, I can understand. Then, there are those of you who have grown-up kids. My parenting's done. They're no, no longer under my roof. And so, you're thinking about going to the bathroom for the fourth time during the sermon and looking at the bookshelf for a while uh, until it's over and we're worshiping. Now, let me just let me make it personal for everyone. Okay? You don't need to, don't need to raise your hands. How many of you have or have ever had parents? Yeah, unless there's some freaky miracle going on, you have parents. They might be dead, they might be alive, I don't know, but you have parents. You are, in many ways, always children. Some of us more childish than others. Okay? But you are positionally children in many ways. I know you go, well, someday we become peers. Let's just go with this. Now, the Ten Commandments were more than just a list of rules. Okay? They, uh, without doubt, were written to reveal our sin. They were re- written to show how broken and in need of a Savior we were and, and was intended to lead us to Christ. But the Ten Commandments are also insight into the unchanging character of God. Now, the first four commandments, if you're not familiar with them, you should memorize them. Before arguing, they should be in courtrooms or cities. You should probably have them on your own wall and memorize them. First four commandments are deal with man's relationship with God directly. The last six really deal with man's relationship with one another. Don't lie, covet one another, you know, those kind of things. Now, the fifth commandment, which is the first of these relational ones, is to honor your father and mother And it's not simply a commandment for parents and their kids, for parents to help raise their children. It is for men and women, parents or not, who are to act as God's representatives in this world to declare His rule and His order and His authority by how you behave. Especially how you interact in your family. And while this command is obviously pretty relevant to kids, the Ten Commandments were given to adults. And there were more adults in the service listening to these commands and and this letter than children. And when you 
refuse to live according to God's design, to act as, as God's authoritative agent, or respect the agents in your own life. The result is going to be chaos, not just in your own family, but in the coming generations. And as much as children honor or dishonor their parents, as youth even honor their teachers, as men and women honor the authorities in their lives, whether they're political leaders or bosses or whatever, God is dishonored or honored in your life. And according to the commandment, there's a consequence attached to it. Now, we never stop having parents, okay? And so, some of our parents only live on our memories and the stories we tell. But, let us consider for a second, the first thing you were thinking was, well, I'm not a parent. The second thing, once you realize that you have parents, and that you have a responsibility to honor your parents, you have a mind probably consumed right now with ways you believe your parents have fallen short screwed up, or otherwise sinned against you. All the reasons that they're not worthy of honor. I'm sure that's not happening. Okay? Many of us, if we're honest, are sitting on a pile of sins that we refuse to forgive that need to be confessed and repented of. You've already decided, most likely... My fear is that different places where you're authorized not to show grace, where because of all the ways your parents hurt you or did not love you as you think they should have. And I am not, I am not, I am not trying to minimize the reality that all of our parents fail or hurt us in some way. Now, granted, my dad's in the service, okay, so I, I love you, dad. But, okay, he knows. I hope that he failed me in some ways and I'm going to fail my children. That's the reality of parenting. It's the reality of being a broken sinner who's fallen short of God's glory. I don't want to minimize that. Some of you have been terribly hurt by your parents. But if you can ignore for a second that legal defense team rushing to your brain to help you justify all the reasons why it's right to not honor them? Okay, we're not talking about, well, I'm not going to dishonor them. I'm talking about honoring them. Not just passive honoring. Consider again the example of Christ, who, through faith, by His Spirit, lives in you and through you, according to Galatians 2.20. The Bible says that Jesus was sinless. You break that down. Well, what's that mean? Well, Not only did he obey his heavenly father perfectly, he obeyed his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, in a way that pleased the Lord perfectly. Now, maybe I don't need to remind you, but I will. Do we realize that Joseph and Mary were sinners? They were sinful people, just as we are. They made mistakes. They made bad decisions. You think Joseph never had a harsh word for his son Jesus? Although he was doing everything perfectly, so maybe he didn't. But, right? They were broken parents. All parents are. 
And yet Jesus did not use that fact. I mean, that was a fact. He was perfect. He wasn't stepping out of line. He didn't use the fact that they were sinful as an excuse to justify dishonor. He honored them. He honored them to the point of death where he's on the cross and he yells out to his best friend John and says, Take care of my mom. That's honoring. Ensuring that she's cared for and protected and loved. Now, without doubt, um, as, as we've all gotten older, we don't obey our parents in the way maybe we once did when we were in their homes. But I just want us all to consider for a second, and, and I don't know if the sermon was going to go this way, quite frankly. I heard Jim preach on this, and it really convicted me. And he preached when his parents were in the audience, too. It was interesting. But I think we need to all consider, um, as older kids, how this verse instructs us about our own disposition toward our parents. Right now. And if they're alive, let's just be real honest. Like, how do we honor them? You know, you're like, well, they're not worthy. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's not the gospel. The minute you start saying, well, you don't deserve love because of this, you've just become anti-gospel. How do we treat our parents? And those are grandparents. And then you think, well, my parents are gone, so I'm free. Well, how do you speak about their memory? How do your children know about your parents. We need to all come to face-to-face with the idea of, the, of how, you know, we could talk about how we're raising our children, but let's first talk about how we've engaged with our parents and remind ourselves that how we have or are doing that is not just going to affect us, it's going to affect two other generations. It's going to affect our children and their children, and it's going to continue because they will learn from that. And I don't want to give a hopeless picture. I'm just saying some of us need to start with confession and then begin renewed sense of honor with our parents. Second verse, verse 21 here, shifts us and and takes us into how parents, particularly fathers, are to relate with their children, though. And it's noteworthy that I think this letter was read publicly uh, because the passage wouldn't make sense or too much at least not fully, if children weren't there. I would love to have more children in our service, quite frankly, to hear the the hard truths of God. Because not only they heard verse 20 about themselves, they hear verse 21 directed to their parents. And they see that their parents are under authority. And they understand what their parents ought to do. Now, they, again, need to understand, I think it's important for them to see that you're under authority, because when you get into discipline and instruct, they understand that you are governed by certain guidelines according to honoring God. And that your motivation to discipline and your motivation to instruct is one out of obedience and delight in the Lord, not just in your own sense of power. But here's what verse 21 says, and I'll read the companion verse in Ephesians 6, verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And then Ephesians passage says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So regardless of when, how, or if you become a parent, we need to begin with this truth to make us all feel better, that parenting is hard. Parenting is incredibly difficult. It is one of the most sanctifying things. That's a 
cryptic way of saying I sin a lot as I parent, okay? That's where I screw up the most, I feel like, and learn the most. And it's made harder because of this, okay? What we have here, and this is what the gospel teaches us, we have sinful parents trying to care and shepherd sinful children sinfully. That's what we're working with. It's bound to be hard. Now, let's begin with some encouragement and the fact that there's no perfect parent and there's certainly no perfect kid. Amen? Right? The first part, too, we could say amen, too. But there is no world's greatest mom and greatest dad, though I have a cup and a T-shirt, so I have that one. Here's what the Bible says. Again, we go back to the Bible. The Bible says that there is one perfect father. The Bible says that there is one who is love, one who is good, and the rest of us, then, are imperfect, unloving, and bad. That's where we are. Now, I don't care how many books you've read, and I will post some really good books I do think are helpful, but they're not the Bible. But they're helpful, and and they give you some good practical stuff. But I don't care how many books you read, how many classes you take, how much advice you get, Parenting is always and forever will be hard. But the Old Testament Scripture reveals something that I think is kind of curious, and we'll see that in our study in Judges, which begins in March, is that good parents sometimes have bad kids, and bad parents sometimes have great kids. And I wish I had the pill to change that. But that is the reality of how the Spirit blows. Now, whether... If you ever read the Bible, which I encourage you to do, you'll see that Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Eli, David, and a list of others are stories of real parents who have screwed up kids. And they're very encouraging stories to read, honestly. Because we kind of position them like they have it all together, and they didn't necessarily. And even when they did right, their kids sometimes went astray. The Bible makes it clear that the perfect environment that you're working so hard to control and fix and make, the perfect environment does not guarantee godly children. Example, Garden of Eden. And I'm pretty sure we wouldn't blame the parent in that situation. And he gave them everything. Perfect construction. Perfect food. Perfect home. And they sinned. So while it's not always the parents' fault, what God is going to hold us responsible for is our endeavor to honor God in parenting His way. He is not going to hold you responsible for whether your kid is saved or not. Okay? That's huge. He's not going to hold you responsible for a lot for your children, but He is going to hold you responsible for your endeavor to honor Him through parenting the way He says you ought parent. And even when you fall short there, there's forgiveness, which is beautiful. But I will say, Paul warns fathers here not to provoke their children in a way that leads them to become angrily discouraged. And I think he is speaking to mothers and fathers, but he's speaking again, emphasizing the authority structure. Fathers are responsible to lead in this. My wife has done a better job in leading this, and that is to probably my shame. But she has helped me in taking a little bit of a better lead in trying to understand parenting and, and, and doing the work of parenting. It's work of parenting. 
But I think it's important that it pokes on fathers who provoke because the reality is fathers, not mothers, are the ones who have the tendency to provoke their children to anger and discouragement. Sometimes through their discipline, sometimes through their sarcasm, which is what I'm guilty of. Joke it to the point where they're weeping. Oops, that was too far, okay? And my wife loves this verse, like, don't provoke your children, don't provoke your children, okay? There's a reality that husbands and, and fathers, they do that. But what this is talking about is provoking them literally to a place where they're embittered towards you and towards God and toward life. And the overarching theme here is that children will become discouraged when you don't love them as God says you ought love them. Specifically through discipline and instruction. These two words. Children become discouraged when you don't love them enough. That's what it is. You don't love them enough to discipline them when they do wrong. Children become discouraged when you don't love them enough and you discipline them wrongly. Because there's a right way to discipline. Children become discouraged, angry and bitter, when you don't love them enough to instruct them what is right. Especially before they do what is wrong. And children become discouraged when you don't love them by instructing them wrongly. Because let's be honest, you can give your kids a lot of instruction, and if it's not godly instruction, your children will become discouraged. Because they'll grow up and think, geez, all this stuff my dad told me was a bunch of crap. That didn't work. If it's not biblical. So if you don't want your kids to become embittered towards you, toward God, or toward life, then you must love them enough to discipline them and instruct them biblically. Now, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe in the doctrine of sin, if it is unloving to allow children to have whatever their sinful hearts want unrestrained, or to allow them to primarily get their instruction from the world. However, loving, however free, however it might feel, in terms of easier to just let them do that, the Bible says quite clearly that true freedom comes through obedience to God's truth. Now, that doesn't mean you just start spanking liberally and teaching whatever has been taught in some parenting Christian book you found. Because that's also a mistake. It's stupid and it's possibly sinful. What is needed is to bring the gospel to bear on your parenting and allow it to govern your discipline and instruction. Because there is gospelless discipline and gospelless instruction. It needs to be gospel-centered because parents not centered on the gospel will end up disciplining and instructing with the wrong motivation, the wrong goal, and even the wrong means. It is what governs you. Now let me tell you what non-gospel discipline looks like. Parents who discipline without the gospel fail to realize this one hugely important truth. And that is that the problem is not behavior, it's the heart. The gospel teaches us that. Otherwise you're like, man, I'm going to do whatever I can to make you stop. Without the gospel, discipline becomes an unloving tool used to punish without any purpose beyond just stopping them from doing something. Parents end up not seeing themselves under the authority and as authoritative agents of God who parent for the glory of God, and instead they view themselves as the authoritative ruler in the home. 
And so the goal then becomes, I'm fighting for my own respect, which is going to come from bending your will to mine. And usually, what that results in is discipline that is always provocative. It is nine times out of ten reactionary. It is usually unloving. And it's often rooted in the approval of men. What do other people think of my family? What does this person in this restaurant think of my kid? It's totally misguided because it's all behavioral. Instruction works the same way. Parents who instruct without the gospel end up teaching often unbiblical truth in order to shape or mold their child into a certain kind of person they think they need to be. Sometimes that's the one full of self-esteem. Sometimes that's the most polite. Sometimes that's the most educated, successful, however you would define that. And on the lighter side of that, of gospelless instruction, you have teaching that basically is earthly focused and it is geared towards building up the flesh with little or any spiritual um, content. The dark side of that, and I think the worst side of that, is where you have instruction basically to declare to the child, without using this term, how sinful they are and how how, how far short they fall. And so all of your instruction, because again, it's pretty behavioral, ends up being correction. And quite frankly, if your child is only nagged, constantly corrected, never encouraged or given hope of the gospel in particular, the child begin to think things like, I will never get it right, all I ever hear is criticism, and he'll never love me. Discouragement, discouragement, discouragement. But I'm giving you instruction. I'm telling him what he should be doing. You need to bring the gospel to bear on instruction and discipline. And here's what it looks like briefly. This will encourage, I believe, your children, leading them not to anger but to joy, not to being embittered but to being honestly appreciative, I think. Gospel-centered discipline begins with recognizing that you as the parent are an authoritative agent of God in the life of your child. You are there to represent God. That's first. And as such, your individual goal, regardless of the child, is to glorify God. And you do that with the child through your obedience to his command to discipline and instruct his way. Not just in the way that's easy, not just in the way that's popular. You have a responsibility, therefore, as we talk about gospel-centered discipline, to represent the holiness of God. And to stand for that. Therefore, you have the duty to lovingly, and I say lovingly because I know your minds sometimes, our minds go into places where we think of the worst case scenario and how bad it can be. But the lovingly restrain your child from pursuing sin. That's loving. And sometimes this comes from a, what I would call a loving, gentle, measured, but strong rebuke. Where you point their sin, you explain its consequences, and you call them to confess and repent. And sometimes it means you spank your kids. And for some of you, that's not popular. For all of you, it should be right because it's biblical. I know, again, you start going, but this is where it can lead to. We're talking about what the Bible teaches, not the practicals, not how it all works out. 
I can give you resources for that, just the principle behind it. And as parents, you have to learn what the Bible says, that this kind of discipline is in fact loving. You have to get to that mindset, because that's difficult to get to. It doesn't feel loving. At the same time, the Bible also says that it is in fact unloving. It might even use the word hateful. Not to discipline and correct your child this way. Now, the gospel governs our discipline, always reminding us that stopping the behavior is not the goal. The goal is heart change, and this is what that means in principle. And you're not going to like this if you're a parent who has difficulty with this. That means breaking the will of the self in your child. But it's not to replace it with your will. It's to replace it with a God will. Now, that is what I call and what I believe is true heart change. Ted Tripp, who has written a couple books on parenting, said it this way, a change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart is not commendable, it's condemnable. Our deepest concern for our children must be to unmask their heart attitude and help them understand as they've sinned that it is a heart that is strayed from God. That is your goal. Now, bring in instruction. Accomplishing that requires gospel-centered instruction. You can't just have one without the other. And it needs to take place before, during, and after discipline. Our job is not, it is not to force our children physically, emotionally, or manipulate them in some way to become the person you think that they should be. Our goal as parents, our job is to shepherd them toward becoming the person that God says they are. A sinner who is loved through Christ. Which means they may not be the person you want them to be but they will be the person that God says that they are to all glory and joy. And a parent cannot start teaching about the love of God, the love of that heart, the love and forgiveness of the cross only when God's laws are broken. Oh gosh, you screwed up. Let's start talking about the gospel now. Gospel truth has to saturate the family all the time so that all discipline and all instruction is happening in a gospel-centered environment all the time. Otherwise, you've lost. You're disciplining your child and you start, oh, I'll throw down a Bible verse now because that makes me feel good. You've lost already. If when you discipline is the only time you ever talk about God, your kids will hate God. Guarantee you. And if you instruct and give all kinds of wonderful advice, and then when they cross a line they ought not, and suddenly you want to bring God into it, good luck. Your kid might as well say, why didn't you talk about God before? So here are some simple guidelines, and that's all they are. First and foremost, you must charge your children with Scripture, not just good advice. Scripture. Both God's promises and His warnings. That is loving. When your child is complaining, for example, this is one of my favorite ones. We bring in the Ephesians passage. They say, what does the Bible say? Do all things without complaining. 
Take it up with God, son. I'm detracting. I'm just kind of deflecting. I'm representing him, but he needs to understand that I'm not just making up religious stuff. It's Scripture. They need to know the Word of God. They need to hear the Word of God. It has power much more than any words you might say. Secondly, we must charge them before they fall. Before they fall. Yes, after, yes, during, but before they fall. You must also charge them repeatedly over and over again about God's promises. They must be taught not only that they are sinners. If you only stop there, they will despair in their sin. They'll be discouraged in their sin. What you have to do over and over again is take them to the cross. You must take them to the cross again and again and again and again and again and again. And they must not only hope in the cross when they screw up and be told you are forgiven. Blood has been shed for that. When they fall short, they must also be taught to boast in the cross when they think they don't. When they are, quite frankly, being a good kid. Don't let them... This is such a hard tension. You want to encourage them, but you want to encourage them to boast in Jesus and what he's doing through them. Not just, you're a fantastic kid, self-esteem, because then the moment they screw up, suddenly they're bad. And you create a really nice little legalist. Okay, That's not the goal. You must teach your children about sin. You must teach them why they sin, about the flesh. You must teach them about the consequences of sin. And you must teach them about how Christ gives them victory over the sin. And I think most importantly, you must charge them with a heck of a lot more than words. With your own life. Your children need to know that you are actually sinners and you actually believe in the gospel. Which means they need to see you confessing sin. They need to see you confessing sin and receiving forgiveness. They need to see you repenting, especially when you screw up as a parent. I don't know if your parents ever confessed that they made a mistake. If they ever said, you know what, I'm sorry. I was giving you truth, but I said it in a way that was harsh. Forgive me. They need to know that you actually believe the gospel if they are actually going to be expected to live out the gospel. Again, especially when you screw up as a parent. And I have made numerous mistakes, and I have confessed to them the mistakes I make. I have asked their forgiveness after they understand that I have received the forgiveness of the cross. That teaches them more than anything. I'll close with this. I don't preach this because I have it all figured out and perfect. I have four children. Um, I maybe someday will have more, and it's hard. And I'm learning how um, to engage and to, to honor my own sinful parents as a sinful parent with sinful children, and I'm just a sinful man trying to figure this out. And it's hard. And what the gospel teaches me, quite frankly, is this. The power to accomplish any of this does not come from me. And that gives me both hope and joy. But it also pushes me to pray more. It pushes me to know God's word more. It pushes me to counsel with those parents who have gone before me more. Part of believing the gospel begins with understanding that you are self a sinner and that any 
power to be a good parent comes from Christ in you by His Spirit. That's where we hold tightly to the cross. And remember this. You never stop being a child. And some of us need to ask some real hard questions about how we are honoring our parents. But I also will say, so we don't forget, you never stop being a parent. This is something to remember for those of you who have kids who have moved out, kids that are, quote, grown up and not living under your roof. You are still an agent of God in their life. You obviously don't demand the kind of obedience and the kind of discipline that you might have had when they were younger, but you still have a voice of gospel-centered instruction into their life. You still have an opportunity and a duty to proclaim to them the truth. In love, but don't go into the world where you suddenly go, well, I raised them, they're gone. What I see parents often doing is suddenly adopting a bunch of really good pithy wisdom and advice and not taking the step to go, you know, I'm going to say this is kind of hard truth to my, my son or my daughter um, as they um, endeavor this way because it's just not my responsibility anymore. It is. It is still your responsibility. You will always be their parent. They may not listen to you. They may ignore everything you say. They may argue Your responsibility isn't to change them. Your responsibility is to honor God and how you speak to them. That's it. I pray as we come to the table today, you guys just understand and we all understand where we begin, which is our own declaration of the gospel and confession. Some of us are adults who have dishonored our parents. And we need to confess that and figure out, by God's grace, how to honor them. And some of us are not parenting our children correctly. Um, And we need to, again, confess that. So I'm going to pray for the strength to do that because, quite frankly, figuring out our families is the best way to glorify God and proclaim in this community. Not evangelistic outreaches, not cool postcards. It's just to be godly families. And let's not forget that.